Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, strap in if you're in marketing, product, finance or even a startup. One of the few good things about being in business publishing, and trust me, there is only a few, is that we get a broad and sometimes early read on market trends and developments. Many are average, but some could shake shit up big time. My hunch is the two startup founders on the mics today will land in the latter camp. In fact, they probably already are. They're in different parts of the supply chain, but both are already upending legacy marketing practices and how marketing contributes to and is perceived by business at large. We're going to hear today how technology and processing power is radically changing or aiding the remit of chief marketing officers, chief customer officers, chief growth officers, CFOs, startup founders, venture capitalists, and and you kind of get the idea. Connor Archbold is the co-founder of Tracksuit, a two-year-old New Zealand-based brand tracking platform that has slashed the cost, turnaround time, cred, and the role of brand in what is often considered fluffy or rubbery by the business community. Brand tracking globally is typically dominated by big global research firms like Ipsos, Kantar, Nielsen, and Qualtrics. But this rapidly growing startup has caught the eye and wallet of marketing's agent provocateur, Mark Ritson, and one of Australia's top VC firms, Blackbird Ventures. Both have invested. Now, joining Connor is Mutinex co-founder and CEO, Henry Innes. He'll be no stranger if you're a regular MI3 listener or reader. Mutinex 2 is shaking up econometrics and market mix modelling via tech and automation and also has a lineup of high-profile investors and another VC firm, EVP. But where it gets really interesting is these two firms have inked a partnership which aligns the in-market perceptions of a brand directly to marketing and business contribution. And yes, we're talking about the P&L. What's really interesting is that those hardcore VC types are piling in, not just as investors, but for their early-stage startup investments to actually use this fancy stuff to grow faster and more sustainably. Both companies are also unusually perhaps landing big domestic and global blue chip brands. Tracksuit and Mutinex are doing their thing faster, cheaper and probably better than anything that's landed globally for marketing, media and tech in the past decade. At least that's my view and it's at least outside those rapacious social platforms. But enough of the spiel, let's find out what all the fuss is about. Welcome to Connor and Henry. Connor, um, we might start with you and Tracksuit. You spent a fair chunk, I think, of your of your recent career in the US, right, working on some big name startups, and it's there that you discovered there was a real problem with how they sort of sustained growth after probably year two, and part of that was a brand problem. So before we get into a whole bunch of stuff, just tell us what you saw in the US and what it is that Tracksuit is solving for, and it's getting all this attention and interest. And welcome, Connor. Good to have you from across the ditch. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, absolutely stoked to be here. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'd been in New York for uh, the last kind of five years pre-COVID and had been there for a lot of that that D2C revolution, seeing, you know, Casper Mattress and Allbirds and, and the likes of Warby Parker um, growing. And, and, you know, there's a whole lot of direct-to-consumer and consumer brands underneath those that, that don't quite have the um, name and press behind them. But uh what you notice when you're in that space and adjacent to that space is that, you know, consumer brands launch and grow really quickly and they often overinvest in performance marketing and conversion optimization. And that's really great for capturing low hanging fruit early on, but it eventually it becomes very difficult to sustain that growth if you're not also investing in brand and building awareness alongside it. That was, by the way, Connor, though, that was the Silicon Valley startup thing, wasn't it? Just to, was to go right at the bottom in performance and, and get customers fast. That was a sort of a standard model. For yeah, in that consumer space, once once people realized that you could do the VC model into the consumer world, and when Facebook and Google marketing were performing as they were in the kind of 2010s, you know, you you could invest like that. But it only worked for a few years, and now there's the cookie apocalypse, and attribution's getting a little bit more difficult. Um, but also, brands are just realizing that once you become a five, ten year old brand. It's hard to continue selling to the same people through the same channels. You need to become omni-channel. You need to go into retail, um, wholesale, and and sell into different areas. So, you know, if you look at what enterprise brands do to combat, you know, the the susceptibility to overinvest in performance, they look at two different sets of data. They they always 
always optimized for performance, and that's that's table stakes. But you've also got to be looking at brand health and awareness and consideration and, and what's happening in your category. And they do that by working with the huge market research firms um, to understand that information. And, and unfortunately, that you know it's a great product, but it costs over $100,000 usually to get an always-on um, brand tracker from one of the big players. And, and it also is often delivered in uh, a way that isn't quite usable for a small, nimble team. Like it's delivered in 100-page slide packs rather than in an in easy-to-use dashboard. So so we, when we set out, we, we were like, hey, there's a problem. These brands aren't continuing to grow the way that they did. Possibly the solution, you know, what gets measured, gets managed, throws out, uh, is thrown out a lot. Um, as like, you know, a reason why things don't get looked at. And so believing what gets measured, get managed, and then creating a brand tracking platform that everyone could get access to and was accessible for all brands was our potential solution. And uh, yeah, so we're just, we're solving that problem by making the same brand tracking data available um, to every brand and marketer in a beautiful and affordable and always on way. So just before we get into a little bit about how that looks, there was a, an acknowledgement and an acceptance then, at least in your time in the US, that there was a role for brand and there needed to be a role for brand investment and building brand. That that There was resistance for that for some time out of Silicon Valley and the, you know, the growth hacking movement and, and so on. So where did that switch happen, that change in acceptance that, okay, brand, we need to work on brand for a startup at least? Yeah, I think, you know, you see... You see people like the CFO of Airbnb for like two years straight has written incredible blogs on the on the Marketing Week platform about how they, during COVID, decided to stop performance marketing and double down on brand. And uh, and that that sort of information coming out and becoming more apparent, you know, people start believing, oh, right, there, there is something missing here and you can't only rely on, on performance marketing. And I, I think it's just in the metrics themselves, like, you know, in the 2010s, you put a dollar into into Facebook and Google, and you get two dollars fifty back. And over time, that becomes a dollar fifty, and then dollar twenty, and then eventually it's eighty cents. And you're thinking, why isn't this working anymore? And uh, and you need to figure out how to open up some more channels and, and figure out what's going wrong. So a lot of brands are in that in that mode of like, this isn't working the way it used to. And ultimately, the money they're they've been spending and they will continue to spend is you know funded from VCs. And so VCs are able to look at a number of different companies that are having the same problem and assess why. And, you know, it's old school marketing science that says the 60-40 rule, right? Like it's been around for a long time. um, And people are kind of, you imagine like someone Googling, like, how do you grow if you're not just putting it into Facebook and Google marketing? (laughs) the, The answer, you know, Les Bennett and Peter Field pop up and they're like, whoa, what is this whole world of marketing science and brand that I didn't know about? This is crazy stuff, yeah. yeah. But hey, just, just in case, and I, most will, I'm sure, be across it, but just give us, an, you know, in 30 seconds, sum up what the, the sort of the, the big shift that happened at Airbnb from performance to brand. What did they do? They, they basically chopped performance and search out altogether and nothing changed about the business, right? Yeah, well, I'm going off a couple blogs here, so I, sure. I haven't like spoken to them or anything. So um, just a quick disclaimer, but uh, yeah, I think when COVID happened, people stopped traveling, so there was no kind of need for performance marketing in Airbnb because people weren't booking um, Airbnbs, and so they said, right, what should we do? Let's shift all of that into brand, and let's let's continue building our brand and, and build brand love throughout this period. And then what they saw was it actually. You know, nothing changed from from a growth perspective and like an acquisition perspective. And, and actually coming out of that period, they had higher growth than they'd ever had before. Right. Um, so I think their, their, you know, summary of that of that investment change was like brand does the job and it does it over time. And um, and it's a super effective way to market. Okay, so and that, that gets us into back into tracksuit, really. And so, why is tracksuit so different? Let's maybe start at the top and go. In Australia, New Zealand, now you've got two hundred brands that are that are on the platform using you. It's a SaaS based uh, model. What is so different about it to what we see coming out of Kantar and Qualtrics and Nielsen? We're not we're not reinventing the wheel with what brand tracking is. And and so for context of any for anyone who doesn't know what brand tracking is, we we do thousands of surveys of real humans in the world every single week. Um, and we do those on behalf of our customers uh, and and their competitors. So we, we're tracking about 2,000, um, 2,200 brands across New Zealand and Australia now. And, and we understand, you know, 
who's aware of those brands, who considers buying them, who prefers them, and then some qualitative information as well, what people think and feel about those brands. And so we're, we're performing those surveys every single week, and we're displaying that in a dashboard that can be logged into at any time and, and is, is constantly updated with the, the data that's coming in. That's the same data and the same product in the sense of like the information that's flowing through as as what you know the large market research players do for brand tracking um, the difference is is that it's it's live and people can log in um, whenever they want it's in a dashboard that we actually have simplified it down as much as possible so that marketers feel comfortable sharing it with boards and c-suites and, and it makes brand a little more easy to digest and yeah it's radically affordable because we're doing it at scale um, and a slightly different, and the SaaS model makes it a, a different proposition. So clearly the big difference here is that there's not big thousand page PowerPoint decks of presentations from a, re, a market researcher explaining the data, right? This is direct feed into, directly into a company. That, that's quite a significant difference, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and not taking away from large companies, they they do dashboarding sometimes. It's just very expensive and, and often tied with a white glove service of, of people explaining it of account managers explaining that information. So what are we talking a cost difference? I mean, I did say at the top that, you know, you'd slash the cost. Is it one-fifth, 20% of what, what you'd get in market now? Yeah, you can you can kind of start with part of Tracksuit at, at a tenth of the price. And, and, you know, when you're getting the full suite, um, it's down to about a fifth. A- annualised? Yeah, annualised, yeah. So we're talking, what, we're talking 10 to 20 grand starting point then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Can you give us kind of a couple of examples of how that's working in market? Good ones, really, of, of, of some brands that are that are doing it, and what's what they've done as a result of of um, seeing the data. Because I think the the other point you made uh, when we we're talking earlier is that because of the price point change now, it opens the market up to a whole bunch of companies, smaller companies that may not and could not afford a big one hundred k equity brand tracking study. Right? These are some of the things that are going to happen as a result of your your product coming to market. Yes. And, and what we've seen, you know, there is a big brand tracking market in New Zealand and Australia. About half of our customers were doing some form of market research, usually like an annual dip um, to see, you know, where they sit in the market. Uh, and the other half of our customers weren't doing any market research. So, you know, we're optimistic that we're actually doubling the size of the brand tracking market um, globally, which is really exciting. Some of the brands that we work with, um, it'd be remiss of me to not shout out the Eucalyptus team, um, who are awesome and we've worked closely with over the last um, few years since launching. Tim, one of the founders, told me that tracksuit screenshots are one of the most common thing to be um, sent around their Slack channel, which uh, I was super stoked with. And their head of brand, Matt Rossi, he said that tracksuit is the ultimate way for him to understand whether what they're doing is working overall. So, mm. you know, they're, they're running all sorts of experiments all the time. They're trying a first TV ad, you know, this quarter. They're trying this, posters over here, billboards over there, um, a bunch of performance marketing as well. And if you see that awareness and consideration and preference going up quarter on quarter, it's the ultimate way of knowing whether everything you're doing is actually moving the needle in the right direction. I will get back to the your global ambitions because you're already, I think, in New York and London, and it's um, and you've got some investment. Um, just very quickly, how did the I guess how did Mr. Superstar Mark Ritson get involved in Tracksuit? Uh, well, I think you you did a podcast with James Herman yesterday, who is a, a Kiwi um, who's kind of well known in the same spaces as Mark Ritson uh, and and one of the world's most recognised brand strategists. And so James is on our board. And he um, was able to, through his networks, get access to Mark. And, okay, that's how it came, right? Yeah, and and when you wa- watch Mark's content, about you know four thousand brand marketers go through his course every year, and which is an incredible course. Shout out to the Mini Marketing MBA. Um, but you know the the uh, the people that are going through that, he says things like, you know, if you're a brand manager and you don't have brand tracking, then what are you managing? Right. You know, and and so it was it was pretty easy to see the crossover and. And Mark will say to people that it's, you know, you just go and build your own one and it'll cost you $20,000 and you're doing Google surveys or SurveyMonkey surveys or something like that. And, and when we showed him what we were building and the fact that it could be done for, you know, you could provide a, the same data for, you know, at a more affordable rate and a, and a better looking dashboard, he was like, well, this is a no brainer. Um, and so, yeah, we were super excited to have him on board and, and to be part of the team. Come on, Connor. What, how, how much did he pay? What did he get? No, Let's go. No, no we're not, not going to talk about that, Paul. I will have to ask Mark directly then. I'll do that. Yeah, go um, for it. So listen, Henry, I had to try, Connor. I had to try. 
Henry, now we'll get to why you two companies are, are getting together, but before we do that, maybe just a quick, quick lowdown on Mutinex, what it's doing, and an update on on um, how your product is, uh, your your platform, SaaS platform as well, is being used um, in the market. Welcome back, Henry. Uh, thanks, Paul. Look, I think hopefully we're not not too mysterious to your audience, I'd suggest anymore, but um. I, effectively, what Mutinext does is it provides growth analytics. So if you're looking to grow across your business, you want to know, has this investment paid off? That's that's effectively what, what the product provides at a baseline level of kind of analytics and reporting. The analogy is market mix modeling, quite similar to Connor. Market mix modeling is a 100-page deck, three months to build a model, probably has a bunch of kind of stakeholders running around with that deck and not much is done with it. We kind of put all of that into an awesome Awesome looking dashboard as well, um, but we also have a model and stack which is able to do it very, very quickly and cost effectively. And we probably have a pretty big deep tech advantage uh, with that. So you know, the cost of us doing econometrics is far, far cheaper um, on an always-on basis than than the market at the moment. And we're going to continue to push those cost reductions through. Now, in terms of how customers are using this data, I think you know, in conventional MMM, you review it once per year. You kind of you kind of say, oh, look what worked, look what didn't. It's kind of a big strategic review process. We're really looking to shift that data to help people and you know work with businesses like Samsung, like ING, like you know uh, Asahi, and we have done for a long period of time. You got some banks too, I think, haven't you? That gets serious when you got bankers. You got banks in there too, don't you? Yeah, we have lots of banks. They're hard to crack, so you must be doing something right. We have upwards of five banks on the platform. Right. And most of whom are in long-term contracts, which is um is really, really pleasing and encouraging. Um, but realistically, if you look at what most marketers need at the moment from data, it's not heaps more data points for them to kind of run around and go, hey, you know, look at what we know about this really small individual consumer over here. They really need to make the 10 to 12 decisions every single year that are going to unlock growth for them and invest in those bets and double down on those bets. And that's what we try to get our customers doing, looking at what two decisions or changes they're making each month, reviewing the change, the changes that they've made each uh, over the next month, and then deciding whether to keep or kill the month after. By following that really simple framework, we were, we're able to just help people kind of move but what sort of decisions you're talking about, Henry? What sort of decision when you say make two decisions a month? What are they? Yeah. So, so if you think about what market mix is, it's capital allocation. So, really, it's do I place money in this channel or this channel? Have I invested enough money into marketing? Have I uh, should I be optimizing uh, capital within this channel or pulling money out of this channel into this channel? Which formats or tactics are working best? You know, should I wait more into brand? Do I have enough investment in brand to sustain uh, demand and uplift and things like that? And even down to, you know, are there certain economic factors that are really weighing down the business, which actually justify more increase in marketing? Because I need to offset the drag that the economy is uh, placing uh, on the business. So it's all of those different factors that you would consider within the marketing mix. We're trying to help people move from, I think these things are affecting me, to I know how much these things are affecting me and what decision I should make to to solve that. Right. And that's landing. So firstly, Mutinix is answering those questions, or at least it's been believed by your clients that you are, and that's having having quite a good impact or a, a material impact on finance teams, for instance, saying, okay, marketing actually is delivering something here, as opposed to, are they? Yeah. Well, I think the challenge with attribution historically has been finance hasn't believed in attribution. Uh, and the reason why is they see these fancy platforms that are kind of marking their own homework and going, well, why should I believe that if I'm getting reporting from this platform who directly benefits, why should I believe in the numbers coming out of that? The great thing about market mix modeling and econometrics is anyone who's done finance has also done statistics at university. And from that, they've all done some variant of regression analysis and econometric analysis. So they understand exactly how and why these numbers are constructed. So it's a funny thing in the sense that econometrics is actually the exact right methodology to communicate finance with purely because everyone who's done an accounting degree has gone through and been trained in this exact analysis. Right. 
And that's why it tends to land much better than, say, a really fancy attribution methodology, which is trying to track someone all over the internet and finance goes, well, I kind of think that's bullshit because how, how can you follow someone exactly around the internet and tell me that you know this exact thing influenced by this exact amount? Um, anyone who's trained in stats knows that's not true. But what they do know is that you can actually understand the broad trends really well for econometrics and statistics. And so when you're presenting numbers and you're presenting numbers that are based on something that somebody's been trained in for the last, you know, two years of their university degree, um, they tend to align to it much better. Got it. So listen, we're going to get to why you're jogging with Connor and tracksuit. Boom, do you see what I did there? But before that, can you give me one example, one really good example of how a brand is applying, if you can name them better, but just a case study of how it's being used and what's more importantly, really, the impact, the results. So large CPG business, household name, uh, was looking to migrate, uh, uh, well, looking at kind of uh, YouTube as a channel. Um, now, YouTube for them historically had been pretty heavy in six seconds and things like that. Six-second video ads, you mean? Yeah, yep, yep. say so six-second video ads, but the ROI on 15s was actually much better. And there are probably a few reasons for that, um, but cut-through was likely better and things like that. They moved that money all, all across mostly into 15s, and they saw a material kind of lift in the ROI, not just the channel, so some maybe 20 to 30% on the channel, something like that. But then they also saw the corresponding bump on the actual PL because obviously Econometrics is built on the PL. It's not built on, say, trying to claim the sale and things like that via a pixel. So you only get a positive bump on an Econometrics platform if you get a positive bump in the PL. And so that was a really, really good example of why it worked and also why it was taken really seriously um, within a financial context. I think a second really good example is. We've seen quite a few times um, where, you know, a brand might be really heavy in a channel, e.g., you know, search or something like that, which is driving a hell of a lot of volume for them. And it's probably driving a hell of a lot of sales for uh, sales for them, but it might not be doing so at maximum incremental efficiency. And so what you tend to see on those channels is those channels are really, really positive within the platform in terms of the volume, but not necessarily in terms of their incremental efficiency that they drive. So what would actually drive and capture growth? And so what marketers will then do is they can actually have a data point to go, well, we know that this channel, e.g. search, and I've probably seen this happen three or four times, is driving a heap of volume, but what it's not going to drive is a heap of incrementality for us. And so if we really want to grow our market share, we actually need to move into this much smaller channel, which hasn't historically been as big for us, e.g. might be TV at home, often BVOD and online video as well increasingly. And we need to invest in those channels a bit more because even though they deliver a lot less volume to us now, we know their rate of incrementality is much, much, much higher. And so we're seeing that and then seeing the corresponding payoffs in incremental growth, which then also flows onto brand metrics as well. Final thing that we see a lot of is we have a link between if consideration is higher, if awareness is higher, we can actually see what that equity is creating week to week in terms of revenue generation. And so what we often see is after a sustained burst of a campaign, the brand metrics go up and we're tracking what that revenue impact is. So e.g. a percentage point in unprompted awareness is worth X million in revenue on a weekly basis. And that's, again, really powerful because most marketers now know, actually, the cost of letting our brand metrics deteriorate from, say, 15% to 10% unprompted awareness isn't nothing. It's actually maybe three, four, five, six million a week in revenue. And because they can present that argument, they can present the argument to defend that budget. And that's landing with finance, landing with marketing. That's what you're talking about is, is why you're getting some cred. So what I want to know is why is Mutinex and Tracksuit getting together? What is going on here that says these two companies have got something that's better together or you've got a, I don't know, a bundle product? What are you doing? I mean, what's what's really exciting is with MMM, like Henry is using brand tracking data in, in what they're doing already. So just as he's talking about, you know, looking at what a point of unprompted awareness is worth in revenue terms, that's, they're, they're using that data and, What's different is that they're getting that from the uh, 
you know, market research firms and it's coming in stilted amounts, you know, maybe once a month, once a quarter, and they're having to work that across, uh, you know, and, and use that for their modeling, which is a little more difficult. It's also, they have a bunch of clients who could be getting that value, but aren't because they don't invest in brand tracking. So, you know, really the idea here is that we are very good at gathering that data. We can do it in a much more efficient and, and much more usable way. Uh, and so, working with people uh, like Mutinex and, and the team, we can provide that and they can add more value to their customers because it's really like, it is the holy grail of of a lot of MarTech and a lot of brand thinking is being able to connect uh, an increase in brand love and, and awareness to revenue. And that's what a lot of people have been doing for a long time. And it's a super exciting way to work together. And we're, we're super aligned. Um, we call that, we call that future demand building at tracksuit. Um, and I think Henry calls it uh, brand equity and, and it is, it's a line in the balance sheet, right? Like if, if there's um, an acquisition happening and, and private equity teams are looking at, at a, a business and they'll be looking at a dollar figure next to brand equity. And if you can change that to be something that is, is able to be calculated through how much awareness and consideration and preference you've created over the last five years and how you know that is going to play out in terms of revenue, that's a super exciting change for everyone. Um, and so, yeah, it's something that we're, we're all like working towards, like we're both very aligned and working towards that. And, and so, you know, putting our thinking caps on together um, is, is an exciting way to get there faster. Henry, what does it look like for you in terms of what a client will have ingest the tracksuit data into the Mutinex platform and then somehow some magic happens? What, what actually happens here? And I've heard Connor's argument. Why are you doing it? Well, I think the the best way to look at the market right now, you know, we obviously collect from a whole heap of different sources and, and data sources. We have been told for the past 10 years that we've been doing digital transformation, but the reality of most data at the moment is it is still relatively manual or to a degree manual. And what I mean by manual is it's not stored neatly in clean databases. It's not stored in a clean data warehouse that then goes out to a dashboard. You can't then call on that API to automatically pipe it through to another system with minimal to no effort. And so I think part of the challenge of that is if you look at other ecosystems, e.g., you know, what happened in accounting with Zero and NYOB and all those sorts of businesses, what happened in those sectors is you basically had a whole bunch of businesses come up that replaced, say, you know, the big eight, uh, big payroll firms and stuff like that, and they were able to connect various different services with them via APIs. I see the same thing happening in the market research space, and fundamentally we have a lot of very disconnected and siloed data sources that aren't designed to be interoperable. Um, and that's created a really siloed ecosystem where effectively the link between all of those data sources is marketers having to share things over email a hell of a lot. That's not a great ecosystem to live and work in. And I think what you're seeing from businesses like Tracksuit and us is we're pioneering what is a new category, which is SaaS-based market research. No one has modernized the market research industry yet via SaaS principles by making it super user-friendly, work really fast and prioritize the user and making the user's experience great rather than ticking off massively large enterprise requirements. Those are still important, but the fundamental of what we need to be doing and what SaaS has shown is if you make stuff work beautifully for the user, you ultimately make a much better ecosystem, much better experience, and you empower people in organizations to do their jobs. And so for it's a bit of a macro view, but to go to Tracksuit and Mutinext specifically, when we deal with brand tracking data, we're dealing with it monthly and customers have to incur fairly large costs in order to execute those programs. We still always work with those market research vendors. They have fantastic data points, but we have a whole cadre of customers who can't necessarily get the data at the frequency we would need for modeling cost effectively. We have a whole cadre of customers who, even if they could get that data, engineering it to pipe it to us is going to be really, really difficult. So by identifying SaaS-based market research vendors like Tracksuit, like other groups, and there are other groups in markets doing similar things, we believe we can start to pioneer this space and really start to democratize access to data democratize importing data into models, make that faster, better, simpler, and ultimately far cheaper for the customers to operate the ecosystem. And so 
that's that's really where we want to be. Um, mm. when it, when it comes to our how we work with tracksuit, we want to really build partnerships with these sorts of businesses because fundamentally it will make our customers' lives easier if they have turnkey solutions in this space, if there is a problem. And we believe that's where, where the future will go in this space. And somehow you guys are working out a single view that will, or a view that will link brand equity to business impact, sales, incremental growth. Um, there is a way for that to happen between the two. Is that Does that come through? How does it work? How does the two platforms work? Is it going to be two dashboards and somehow someone's going to have to skunk a solution that says, okay, brand equity is tracking this way. Mutinix says our, our incremental revenue is that, and we're attributing it to a component. Um, now, I just made that shit up. I have no idea. So can actually, <laughs> can I just have the truth? Connor. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's not put the cop before the horse. We're, we're like chatting and we're 100% aligned on the future and of how market research will play out and, and the value we can create for our shared customers. Um, but as, as Henry said, they might work with multiple providers to plug this data in. You know, we are we're going to be the most user friendly and the biggest um, provider that they could possibly choose from, and we hope that it's the same um, the other way around. But you know, there's the way that our data works is like we can we can plug into multiple providers of that sort of research as well. So you know, you imagine working with the World Advertising Research Center on how the Amazon uh, purchases are playing out and they could use awareness consideration preference data to start drawing out correlations across time as well. So the the key thing is like we're both operating independently. We are 100% aligned on SaaS-based market research and brand and marketing having the tools they need to do the most epic job um, they can possibly do and for getting the credit that they deserve for the incredible marketing that they do do. And, you know, we're excited about working together to drive those outcomes. So, Connor, do you get any resistance? Um, so I think you said you, you're tracking a couple of hundred brands in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We're about two, 220, 250 in New Zealand, right. Australia, and then um, we've launched into the US and UK as well. What is the resistance you get from either startups or, you know, enterprise, big blue chips? And we might add to that too is that, you know, VCs are buying into this as well for their own investments. So can we cover those couple of things off? But the resistance, is there any resistance or does everyone just sign up because you're so cheap and good? I don't know if that was a plug. I hope it wasn't. <laughs> That's great. Um, I mean, there's, there's the fact that we use the same data sources, the same panel providers means there's, you know, very low barrier for brands that are doing existing market research to come on. Um, and, you know, there's the the resistance being if someone is doing market research currently, they'll probably wait until the end of their their annual term to, to jump on. But we're actually not playing in that space very much because we're working with growth companies and with companies who haven't actually done a lot of market research previously. And so, yeah, what we see is, is the budget tends to exist because they've been doing an annual dip or they've, you know, people put aside one to three percent of their marketing budget to find out whether what they're doing is working. And so that that budget will sit there. Um, once they hear about us, you know, the perfect uh, customer has done brand tracking at like a, a bigger entity before. And then they're now at a growth company where they can't exactly afford it and they, they haven't seen an option that works for them. And then as soon as they see Tracksuit, they tend to jump on board pretty quickly because they're getting what they need to do their jobs. And so the, the, the private equity and VC firms are also buying this, and I'll go to both of you on this because I think you're both having some, um, getting some, making some inroads in there, in there. But those hardcore finance dudes that are really just looking for some a return and, and a multiple that they can you know go in and exit at some point, they are now coming around to this notion that brand and brand tracking actually is important to their investments. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't think that's so new in the private equity space, but I think in the VC space, it's definitely new. And while we were raising our seed round, you know, it was really interesting talking to any venture capital firms that had put money into consumer brands because you'd sort of talk to them about the problem we're solving where these brands grow really quickly and then and then find it hard to maintain that growth rate. And you just see them start nodding and right. seeing, you know, they, they'd seen this happen and then they're like, right. And so the solution is to be tracking the top of funnel. And, and when you make that clear to them, they realize they've read a few blogs about that in the past. And, and they sort of had heard of Peter Field and Les Binet, and And they're like, stop putting two and two together. And, and it was really interesting. So yeah, there's, you know, we're, we're not selling to them, but like they're great channels for us um, because they are connected with a number of brands and they might want to, you know, be monitoring that those metrics alongside the brands. 
Is it the same for you, Henry? Are you seeing this similar sort of um, receptivity? I mean, I would say our customer profile is a bit different, to be honest. I th- I'd say we're pretty concentrated in, in enterprise. You know, we've got a very large enterprise customer base now, and it's probably more the sweet spot we've played. Mm. We have ha- started to increasingly have meetings with what I would call more mature startups. So startups who are probably in their third year of consumer-led spending or something along those lines, they probably made a lot of bets and they're starting to think about, well, where are the unit economics uh, within this mix and, and how can I get to a sustainable unit economics? And I'd say, you know, my feeling is that's probably driven as much by market conditions for fundraising as it is as it is like the stage and cycle of companies because I think, you know, two to three years ago, the response was when the uh, with that well we'll just raise more money to figure it out later. Whereas increasingly now, what kind of startups who are hitting that maturity curve will do is they'll go. Actually, we need to get our unit economics really straight before we actually start to uh, go and look for another growth round. So we are seeing ourselves play a role in that, but early days to say whether or not it's um it's gonna it's going to necessarily be a big channel for us. I'm not. Sure. I'm genuinely not sure. Right. Well, we've already discussed about the disruptive nature of uh, of what Mutinex is doing in the econometrics, the traditional econometrics industry, and you know, with the processing power you talk about and the speed to market and that sort of visualization, the dashboarding is really landing. What do you think, Henry? Tracksuit's going to do to the brand tracking and market research industry, from my perspective. It looks like it's massively disruptive if he's cutting the cost, you know, if they're cutting the costs and the product is in real time and it's delivered in a different way, that can only mean one thing, some pain for the incumbents. I like how you asked me that question, not Connor. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd have you be the icebreaker because, Connor, we're just, gently, we're just gently bringing Connor into, you know, some robust observations, shall we say. I'm going to answer this abstractly. It's very unlike you to be non-direct, uh, Henry Innes. I know, but I'm trying to build a relationship with Connor, so, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that historically we've seen immense amount of disruption when two things happen. There's a better user experience at a much cheaper cost. You know, there's that awesome book by Clayton Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma, one of my favourite books to try to find where innovation was, and it was actually a bit of a driving thesis as to why Mutant X was probably a good bet. Uh, for me in the early days. And and I think it's very, very difficult for any incumbent business to compete with products that are much cheaper cost bases uh, and much better user experiences because you effectively have to do two things. You have to, one, re-engineer your cost base. And, you know, no large company likes halving its cost base, even if it's more profitable. Well, and, and in research, it's people. That makes it even more difficult. Well, the second thing is you then have to re-engineer your business models, right? And I think, you know, whilst I can't speak for Connor, we've seen this play out in the Mutinex example where, you know, we know there are businesses now that have effectively gone from making fairly decent profits in MROI studies over the past decade to now they're effectively running those businesses as loss leader divisions, um, throughout the market. And those are some fairly senior businesses who are in the MROI space and very active. And I would say that's, you know. Marketing return on investment, by the way, MROI. Yeah, MROI. Yeah. So marketing return on investment studies and things like that. So I think within our own sector, we've certainly changed the pricing dynamics and the expectations of the sector as well, sufficiently that it's pretty difficult for a lot of companies now to make good margins within our sector. And I think that's emblematic of when you have a tech solution going up against, you know, what I would call big kind of incumbent processes and solutions. So when that happens, those companies tend to tend to have, you know, a more painful experience. And I think that's what we're seeing within our sector. I can't speak for brand tracking because I actually don't know it um, and I don't know the economics of it that well. well. Well, let's ask Connor, shall we? Connor, so what is the economics of the uh, research sector and around brand tracking? Uh, firstly, we'll start with the addressable market. Globally in, in Australia, what's the spend on brand tracking? Have you got a, a figure that's sort of reasonably accurate? 
Yeah, brand tracking across New Zealand, Australia, the US and UK is around is about a $4 billion market. And, and as I said at the start, we believe that, you know, 50, well, 50% of our customers did not do any brand tracking or market research before joining. So we're kind of optimistic that we can double that market and turn it into an $8 billion market um, just in those four countries. Uh, it's a lot bigger worldwide, and that's also just just brand tracking. And, and you know, market mm. research is, is a much bigger market outside just brand tracking. So how disruptive is Tracksuit to the sector itself? There you go. You asked what you really wanted to ask. I um, did. You know, and that was a slow feed, so you have to give me some kudos for that. I didn't go in hard. Yeah. No, look, I mean, I don't, I'm not the type of person that takes shots at competition or anything like that, and, and I think that we have built Tracksuit off the back of some great learnings by the, the large incumbents. So, and, and we even partner with many market research agencies who use our data and our platform and then build their services on top. So like the way that we're doing it, you know, it is disruptive in, in you know, the way that Henry's talking. Like it's it's new, it's fresh, it's SaaS-based, um, and it's dashboard, and it's cheaper, and that will shake things up, I'm sure. Um, the large players will be looking to compete, build, buy, partner, and we and we we like that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of room in the space. It's a huge global category, and there are lots of people coming up in the space with data as a service and market research as a service businesses. And so, you know, we're, we're all looking to carve out our, our, our own little spot. And I think... Um, no, and to, look, yeah. I mean, you, you clearly want to be... Um, my, Henry was unusually diplomatic too, by the way. So both of you are playing... I think you're both going into politics. That's next after you sell your startups, I assume. But the, the thing here is that we will not be expecting some fight back from from the big players. This is typically what happens. Um, you know, there is there is a counterplay that goes on when you get a disruptive challenger brand or challenger player in the market. There is fight back. So why will not that happen fast and give you a little bit of uh, run for your money, Connor? Oh, I'm sure. I'm 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 sure they they will be putting new offerings out and and but we haven't seen it yet. Um, and you know, so far been around for two years and, and we're capturing a good share of the market and we're not we're not actually biting off too much of their pie yet you know we're, we're coming at this bottom up rather than top down which is actually part of the innovation and mm. they're not you know going to shake their 300k contracts to go after a, a 15k contract like tracksuit does um, so our business model is just very fundamentally um, different and and so we're going to be able to play for a while uh, before we see anything um, come in that's that's too aggressive, I think. Paul, if I can say one probably less diplomatic thing. Let's go there. Okay, I'm in. Thank you, Henry. One of the key and core challenges within this space, whenever I hear incumbents saying, you know, we can we can partner and we can disrupt and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I've heard it time and time again um, that, you know, we can build comparable, we can do this, we can do that. I've heard that from incumbents a lot. It's very, very hard to build strong environments where you have environments where engineers thrive, really top-tier startup talent thrive and things like that. Look at the type of business that we built, by way of example, we're attracting people from uh, ex-Airtasker, ex-Finder, ex-Rocked, all of those sorts of people um, who are absolutely wanting to make massive impact. I hate to say it, but you don't go to a 3,000-person company if you want to make massive impact. Right. That's a nine-to-five job. And so... The reality is, is I think that forgetting even the product side of things and talking about how do you create an innovative culture, you cannot create innovative cultures in businesses of that scale. Whereas business, uh, businesses that are kind of coming up and things like that, that's why startups have historically existed. Mm. Um, and that's why startups get the opportunity to innovate and build those cultures because they can do that. I'm sure that if we ever got too big at Mute Next, for example, we would be in the same position, right? Suddenly we'd shift from being able to attract those people to having to fill lots of bums on seats and becoming a bit of a nine-to-five company. The reality is, is just when we, by the time Mute Next does become that big, I hope they've got rid of me. <laughs> yes, I do too, because that won't be a happy place, I don't think. So look, I think um, where we need to go now is Global ambitions. So starting with you, Connor, we know Mutinix is already in the US. I think, um, Connor, you're in the US too and London and the UK. Is that right? So what is the plan here, the, the roadmap that we'll see 
your model, your business actually take off globally? And that's the intent, I, I'm imagining. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're super excited. We're building teams in Australia. We've got five people in Sydney now. We've got um, just one in New York, and we've got someone lined up to start in the UK relatively soon. We're, we basically let our customers pull us into new markets. So if you can imagine um, someone like Bondi Sands is, is using us and they we track their brand in Australia, the US and the UK. So, you know, we've launched surveys there. And then I guess automatically when you have a survey, uh, you start thinking, well, who, what other brands can we get in here? So um, we're talking to UK brands, talking to US brands. We've got um, some amazing we call them like our launch partner customers uh, in those places. And the goal is to basically get 50 customers in each of those spots over the next year and just like handhold, understand what they need from the product, ensure we have product market fit, um, which, you know, we, we basically feel like we have very good product market fit in Australia and New Zealand. And so we're kind of doubling down on that over the next 12 months. It's get these early launch partners um, in the U.S. and U.K., build the products with them suited to market and then raise another round and pour gas on the fire, as they say. So my, my numbers are based on your sort of baseline. I think we're, we're talking about four and a half million in revenue. You're a two-year-old company, you're at four and a half million revs now. In two to three years, what does that look like? Is that a 10 times or five times? I mean, we're sort of, we're sort of thinking that we should be at least doubling that this year and then, you know, we'll, we'll – Reforecast and see what sort of crazy numbers we can come up with um, for the year after. Okay. Uh, our goal is to always have insane momentum, and that's what we've gone out with, and that's what we continue doing. So, um, so yeah, we're not we're not looking to slow down anytime soon. But if you're going to double, if you're saying you're going to double that addressable market in the US, UK, and Australia, I think was what you said to uh, six six or seven billion from th- what three to four now. If you're going to double that, there's a lot of revenue coming into tracksuit at some point in the next. What three years, five years? Yeah, a couple of years. years. Yeah, and it shouldn't take too long, um, based on you know how how fast we've been getting some of the the best brands in New Zealand and Australia on board. Um, if we can get the right customers, build case studies around them, and and showcase what Tracksuit can do in those other markets, I think. Uh, we got a really good, really good shot at, at growing very quickly. We'll wind this up very soon, but Henry, you're in uh, you're in the US too. Who's growing faster, Mutinix or Tracksuit? I think it depends if you want to calculate it on an ACV basis or not. For the uninitiated, uh, Henry, ACV? Annual contract value. I mean, annual contract value tends to be much, much, much bigger just by nature, the types of businesses that we're working with. So, so you know, but okay, probably. You didn't really buy it, actually, but anyway. I'll, I'll give Connor the edge on this one. I think they're probably going a bit quicker in the US at the moment. We've got a bit of catching up to do, but that's okay. We, we're certainly closing in on... Some, some pretty big contracts over there, actually. So hopefully going to be announcing that pretty pretty soonish. Um, okay. If anyone's listening and they want to come be an account executive in the US, please call me. Um, nice, nice. And there was a nice little slip in there, but I'll, we'll, I'll talk to the producer, see whether we're going to let that one through, Henry. We will, we will, just for you. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, um, reality is the US market's huge, right? So we've been over there talking to a few businesses and, a small business there spends as much as a big bank here. Like it's right. crazy. So, and the value of our product, I mean, the insane thing to us is, is that it costs us no more to service a US based customer realistically in terms of the product delivery and stuff like that than an AU customer. So, we're kind of looking at that market and going, like, holy fuck, the margin's going to be insane there. And uh, just by na- just by nature of like how it's going to work, so mm. um, we're really excited because I think the product has an insane amount more value in the US. Funnily enough, I think if we'd launched in the US, it would have been an easier sell than here. And the right. reason why is because it's actually just in an insanely good market in terms of you know it would be what maybe 001 percent of analytics to generate a uh, sorry 001 percent of your media budget to generate a. F- 10% improvement is like a no-brainer. Your return on capital there is, is huge. So right. for us, that's it's a really compelling market. Um, to Connor's point as well, the playbook for SaaS-based market research I don't think is that hard. Do an awesome job with your customers, make them love the product, and then publish case studies and get them talking to other customers. I'd say 70% of our business has been built through referral now. So, right. so I think that's, you know... It's, uh, that in itself is a, is generally a pretty good indicator. 
we've got to wrap this thing up really quickly, but Connor, I just wanted to ask you one question. In terms of the data that and the tracking that Tracksuit is throwing off, is it different just other the other tracking studies that are out there by the bigger companies? Is there a margin of error here? Are you, are you showing different things or are they actually producing similar lines? No, they're, they're very similar. Yeah. Same, we use the same panels. Uh, we're best practice market research questions and questionnaires and surveys. So yeah, it's, it's identical for all intents and purposes. Okay. So there's no risk there on a, on a step change in methodology and different data, different um, sort of changes in the trend line. Got it. Let's wrap this thing up with the final question to each of you, and that is essentially current market conditions. What are you seeing brand owners focus on and what are the conversations, the sort of the, the most important conversations that each of you are having with them? And we'll, one minute each just to really wrap this up, um, give us a snappy take. Connor, yours first. I think more and more you're seeing smart brand leaders and CMOs uh, look to downturns is a bit of an opportunity to build their brand. Uh, they know that some of their competitors will be turning off brand marketing and they see it as a, as a land grab opportunity. So, you know, we talked about that Airbnb example earlier. Well, that's the talk, right? That is the intent by many marketers, trying to get that into the company and uh, to do it and convince executive leadership is a, is a very different scenario often, right? So you see any more traction in the companies buying that, um, that argument from marketers? I think I think so more than previously. It won't be it won't be market wide, and you won't see every company doing it. But certainly more than like the you know two thousand eight downturn. Right. Um, I'd say that we're going to see a lot more of that behavior this time. Um, I think it's what's great for Tracksuit is you know this is this is a really good opportunity for us to actually get there are larger companies that used to invest one hundred and fifty k in brand tracking, and now they're looking for a premium option that's a little more affordable. So. Um, if you if you're getting your budget slash, come come talk to us, uh, and we can give you the same data for for a lot cheaper. Oh, listen, MI three the facility. I should go into affiliate marketing or something, should I? Henry, your final take on uh, market conditions and what we're brand owners. You've talked about the brand thing too this year, right? That's a focus. But what are you what are you getting back? I've I've actually seen a really interesting trend this year compared to other downturns, which is I'm seeing performance budgets being cut first, not the other way around. And that's something I've thought's really interesting. That's not an outlier sort of trend. It's happening in the rump in the middle. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, you know, there are obviously some businesses that will still maintain performance bu- budgets, but I think the the instinct for brand marketers is to defend brand at the mo- moment and and couple or CMOs to defend brand and, and start to tamp down performance a little bit. The other interesting thing on that is that um, is that you know I think companies like Airbnb and other kind of really big startups, you know, startups that people really respect, brands become culturally cool again. You know, it was culturally cool in marketing to be a performance marketer six years ago. Yeah, good um, point. It's increasingly becoming culturally cool in marketing to be a brand marketer, not a performance marketer. And I think that's an interesting trend because, you know, as much as we want to talk about why certain things happen and things like that, the culture of marketing, what marketing leaders are talking about valuing and, you know, and what people are talking about around the water cooler, it's increasingly like how do we get differentiation through brand, not how do we growth hack. And so I think, you know, that's a cyclical thing. Brand will become commoditized, I'd say, you know, in another five years and we'll probably have a new bunch of platforms and blah, 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 and things will change again. But it's just I'm noticing that cyclically this time um, seems to be. Well, look, you're right. It, it sort of um, it sounds about right given the conversations that we're all having in the market and where, where the conversations go. Connor, I'm imagining uh, you wouldn't be too far off that too, right, that there is a bit of a swing back to that and it's culturally, the culturally cool thing. Really interesting. Listen, I, I've got to stop asking questions, but I'll leave you culturally cool cats to uh, take over the world. Uh, Henry Innes, uh, Connor Archibald, great chat, and I'm sure we're going to hear some great case studies down down the track, uh, and I will be watching Rome burn uh, in market research. I had to get that in just because I've been smart-ass. Thanks for joining, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer, Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.